How's it going, guys? I'm excited to be up here. It's a good day, right? Uh, man, worship was great. Good job, guys. That was awesome. Um, Man, uh, so we just got back from Jacksonville, Florida. We went to this conference called All Access. It was part of the church network we were a part of, or that we are a part of, ARC. And uh, it was great. Uh, next year when we go, I hope a lot more people could come with us because it was, it was awesome. It was really encouraging to just be around that many people worshiping Jesus together. It was, it was refreshing. Every day that we went in and we're just worshiping God together and attending different sessions and hearing from great people that have been in ministry a lot longer than us and are, are just getting it right. The Lord's just doing a lot through them. It was really Really great, but a couple of things on that. Man, Jacksonville is beating Delaware if, if weather is a sport. Um, they are killing us. Like, we need to forfeit and get them to teach us how to do weather somehow because it is awesome down there, and it is not so awesome back here. Um, I was actually praying that somehow God would use global warming to fix Delaware. They're like, we could just borrow some of, of maybe like Saudi Arabia's heat. Um, they could cool down because I'm sure they would like that, and we could get hotter. So far, God has not answered that prayer. Uh, I've been trying really hard. I know Jesus commands the winds and the storm to stop. I've been trying to do that in my backyard. My neighbors just think I'm crazy, and God has not answered my prayer. Um, so I don't know where I'm going with that. I'm just trying to ramble a little bit at the beginning and get it out of my system uh, so that I can stay on track in my message. But uh, I also, just real quick on the conference, I wanted to just honor some people that, uh, that got us there. So just two people that really made this trip happen. One is Jeff uh, Brownlee down here. He just, uh, he, the finances, the budget, we used his car. He let, uh, he let five guys pile into his car and stink it up and ruin it uh, for, for five days. And, uh, and, and so I appreciate that. And then Michael, I just wanted to thank him. He, uh, he basically convinced us all to go. I, I can say for sure, after talking to guys on the trip, there was at least three of us, maybe more, that weren't really going to go. We're just like, you know, can't work it out. We don't have the money or we don't have whatever. And Michael lovingly, persistently told us, you need to be there. And, uh, and I'm really glad that he did that. And so I just want to honor those guys. Thank you guys for, for getting that. That trip set up. Uh, it was really, really needed for me. And I know that the other guys on the trip feel the same way. So we are in a series uh, called Running with the Giants. This is our seventh week in the series. We have one more week. Next week, Michael's going to be bringing a message about Jesus Christ. Are you guys excited about that? All right. Wow. Uh, if you're not excited, because uh, that was pretty lame, um, I have to either think you're, you're not saved, which if so, great. I'm glad you're here. This is the place for you. Or you didn't get coffee yet. So we're going to do the backwards altar call, which is the coffee at the back of the room. You can go back there and get saved and, uh, and then come listen to me preach. Uh, so we've been in the series running with the giants where we've been talking about these heroes of the faith, these giants of the faith. And so I want to go to the passage that we've been opening up with every week. It's Hebrews 12 verse one. So if you have a Bible or a phone or a tablet or something, you can go ahead and turn there. If not, just look at the screen. Uh, it says this, therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin, which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. I love this passage. I love coming back every week. And so today we're talking about the giant or the hero in the faith. We're talking about this, this woman named Esther. Uh, and, and I love the story of Esther. It was it was enjoyable and fun to read through this story again and kind of see what happened in her life. And each week we've been saying, what would this person say to us if they could come in the race of our life and kind of encourage us in a lap? I think that Esther would say this, God's purposes are bigger than you. And, and I know that up front saying that, you say, how is that encouraging? I, I tried so hard to nail it down to just one thing. And so originally I was going to say, God is 
bigger, uh, God's purposes are bigger than your mistakes. God's purposes are bigger than your past. But then I thought, no, God's purposes are bigger than your success also. And they're, they're bigger than your victory. Uh, they're bigger than your shortcomings. They're bigger than your personality. They're, they're, they're bigger than you. Just everything about you, God's purposes are bigger than that. And so you, God's purposes aren't limited by you. Um, and, and so I think that's what she would come alongside us to say. And so what I want to do today is paint a picture uh, of the story of Esther. I want us to see an honest picture of who she was and who the other people in that story were. And so again, kind of like the other week when I preached about Joseph, we really just walked through his story and got to know him and, and were able to be ministered to by that story. I'm going to do the same thing today with Esther. At the end of this message, I do have a few points uh, that I'll make because I know some of you, you're like reading the Bible's great, but if we could read the Bible and have points, then it's a real Sunday. And so, uh, so we'll, we'll get to that at the end. But I, I really want to walk through the story, and we're going to look at each character in this story a little bit, the important characters in this story. And what I want you to know up front is really all the characters in this story are flawed and sinful, and, and majority of the time they're bad. Um, and, and what I think we can do sometimes when we read the Bible is this. Um, we read the Bible... And we identify the heroes. We identify the giants. And then we, we try to think, that's me. Um, that's me. And, and then when we get to the characters that are screw-ups and we get to the characters that get it wrong, we, never, we don't tend to think, that's me, right? Uh, there's, there's, no, there's no coffee cups or Christian t-shirts encouraging us to be the bad guys from Scripture, right? Nobody wants to say, I'm like Saul, uh, who, who really just rebels, or I'm like David in his sin. Or, you know, we want to be David when he kills Goliath. Um, but if we're honest with ourselves, when we read the Bible and we come to those characters that struggle, when we come to those characters that get it wrong, I think just as much we should look at them and say, that's me. And that's why I need Jesus. That's why I need God to redeem my life. Because without him, that's who I would be. And so as we walk through these characters in the story of Esther, I don't want you to just kind of ignore it and block it out and go, okay, yeah, well, that evil king was that guy or, or, or Haman, he's just a hateful guy. I want you to be able to see that, you know what, without God, this is who you would be. Um, and, and this is why we need Jesus. And in the midst of that, what we'll see is that God uses people that aren't perfect. He uses people that aren't clean, that don't have the best story to accomplish his will. And so wherever you're at today, know that God can actually use you to accomplish his will. And so that's what we're going to do today as we, as we go through these characters. So first, first character we need to understand that we need to, to come to in the story of Esther is this guy named King. Now I'll call him King Xerxes, right? In scripture, uh, it says King something else. And, uh, I can't pronounce it because I'm not Hebrew. And, uh, so, uh, but, uh, when historically we look at it, uh, this is King Xerxes, just a different name for him because it's a different language. So let's read this Esther chapter one. We're going to start in verse 10. It says this on the seventh day, when the heart of the King was merry with wine, uh, he had been partying for seven days and drinking that whole time. So his heart is to say the least, Mary with wine. Uh, seven days, man. Uh, this is the equivalent of like rush week if you are in a fraternity. Um, but he's the king. And so he's in control. He's not, you know. Anyway, uh, he commanded a bunch of guys who I can't say their names. The seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Xerxes to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the people and the princes her beauty. For she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come to the king's command and delivered, uh, delivered by the eunuchs. At this time, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. 
So King Xerxes is a terrible guy uh, all around. There's, there's not a lot of redeeming qualities to this guy. He's been partying and drinking for a week. Uh, and after a week of this, and his wife wasn't there for that, right? Like what we read is basically she was having her own party with her own friends. Um, so neither of them are great people uh, from what we read. But after a week, he says, you know what would be great? And he's drunk. If I could get my hot wife to come show off to me and all of my drunk friends. Fellas, let me just say, like, if <laughs> this is a bad idea, like there's never a good, this is never like going to be okay. It's never a situation where you and your friends are drunk and you drunk call your wife and say, hey, you know, it'd be great if you could come in there and kind of show off for me and my drunk friends. No woman in any part of history is going to think this is a good idea, right? So Vashti, she's having her own party. And even in her you know, let's say she's drinking too, probably if she's partying, even, even in that state, she's thinking, no, I'm not going to do that. That's stupid. Um, and, and so he becomes angry, right? Uh, and what we, what we, if we had time to read through the whole chapter, what would happen is that his advisors say, you know what you should do then, right? They come with this great idea. They say, you know what you should do? You should banish her forever because if you don't, all of the other wives in the kingdom, uh, they'll rebel against their husbands. <laughs> and so he says, that's a great idea. Uh, so he banishes his wife. Uh, he says, you're never allowed back in the kingdom. You're, basically, she gets demoted. Um, from what I was reading historically, she gets demoted to a concubine, uh, one of the king's prostitutes. Um, so pretty terrible guy. Um, and what was interesting is he makes this decision while he's drunk, okay? And so as we walk through these characters, I think we can just pull out some little kind of life truths, uh, some lessons that we can apply to our life. Making decisions while drunk is a bad idea, okay? Um, getting drunk in general is a bad idea, but making decisions while drunk is an even worse idea. And what I read, because if you read the story of Esther, there's several times that the king and his advisors get drunk and make decisions. And I was like, this is weird. Like, why do they keep doing this? So I was reading the history on it. This is actually really normal. It was part of the Persian empire's culture that leaders would get drunk and make decisions on purpose. Like, oh, we need to decide what to do about this. Well, bust out the wine. Let's get the Jack Daniels out and then we can make good decisions. And, and so they would get drunk and then they would make the decisions and then the king his job and i quote from one of the books i read his job was to justify the decisions when he was sober later right some of you college students are like i think my roommates from the persian empire um it's that's what they did like in that empire that's what they were doing uh they thought it was a a good practice to, to get drunk and make decisions um and to be honest, no one makes good decisions when they're drunk. If you're here today and you're thinking, you know what? Actually, I've made a lot of good decisions when I'm drunk. It's because you're still drunk. Uh, you need to go get some coffee right now. Um, King Xerxes is a bad dude. And, and, and again, when I say we need to identify with these characters, I look at him and I think without God, I would be just as bad as this guy. I would be making just as stupid of decisions. And you say, what do you mean? When I look at my family history, my lineage, uh, up until my father... Uh, alcoholism is rampant in the Mears family. I mean, like, just knock down drunks. My dad has an aunt who died of liver disease, and up until the day she died, she would eat cereal with beer on it every morning. That was her life. Uh, multiple people in my family have had issues with alcohol. My dad was an alcoholic by the time he was 11, which meant he started drinking before 11. By the time he was in junior high, he was taking Gatorade and he would mix Jack Daniels or vodka or different things into the Gatorade and take it to school and drink throughout the day during junior high. Uh, he got saved when he was 15 and God just 
changed his life radically, and I praise God for that. But without the Lord working in my life, without Jesus saving me, I would be like this king, making poor decisions in a drunken stupor. And so if you're here today and that's you, know that God can redeem your story. Know that God can change you. Now, if we read King Xerxes, it doesn't seem that that happens in his life. He remains a bad king. Uh, but God can redeem you. And so I would encourage you, if you're, if you're in any of that place, know that God can change you. Know that it can be different. But you have to stop justifying. You have to move on. So we'll go to the next, the next important character in this story, and that's King Xerxes' advisors. So I want to read about them in chapter 2. I love these guys. It says this. Uh, After these things, when the anger of King Xerxes had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed against her. Now, some context here. This is about three years later, probably. So it took him about three years to miss his wife. I don't know what that says about him or about his wife, but it took him about three years to miss her. Um, Then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the province of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel. And after or under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch who is in charge of the women, let their cosmetics be given them and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king and he did so. All right, the lesson that I think we can learn from this character in the story is that having young men as your advisors is a stupid idea. Uh, It's just stupid. These are the same guys that said you should banish your wife because she won't come show off for you when you're drunk. And now they're saying, oh, you know what you should do since you miss your wife? It's been three years. Uh, We should get all the virgins in the land together and, and have this beauty pageant. And to be real clear, um, if we could read the whole thing, what it says that they'll do is that each individual girl will come in one by one and spend a night with the king in his bed. So we're not talking Miss America walk down the aisle kind of deal. We're talking, let a bunch of women come in one by one. They'll have sex with you. At the end, you decide which one you like the best. She'll be your wife. Oh, and by the way, all of them will be in your harem after this contest. So you, you could sleep with all of them again, if you wanted to, that that's, That's the advice of a young man to the king, right? And this is why it's a stupid idea to have young men as advisors. You say, Joel, that's a little harsh. I feel like I get to speak from experience because once upon a time, I was a young man, right? And and, and you say, well, you're not that old. I am that old because I took a college student out last year and he said, it's great to hang out with you and get advice from an older man in the church. And I... I said, yeah, I'm, I'm 29. He's like, and I'm 19. What's your point? Like, you're old. Like, yeah, I guess I am. Uh, I'll be 30 next month, actually. And, and I'm okay with being old. I'm, my hair is going really gray. My wife thinks that's sexy, so I'm, I'm fine with that. Um, I told her I would do the just for men and go all gray, but she, she said, don't do that yet. And I was like, okay, so um, stay in part gray for now. But let me give you just a couple of stories on why having young men as advisors, people with no experience as your advisors, as your counsel is a bad idea. Because I think what we tend to do in our culture is we tend, and probably every culture, we tend to come up with an idea and then we tend to present it to people who will back up our idea rather than get wise counsel, rather than seek out people who have more experience than us, rather than going to maybe people that'll tell us, you know, that's a bad idea. We tend to just surround ourselves with people who will say, you know what, you're making good decisions. You're making good decisions, despite the fact that maybe we're not. Um, here, here's a couple of things from my young days. Um, I once was an RA at an internship and I got to, it, it was a, a Christian internship. I was in a dorm and I had a group of rooms under me. And each week I would lead a small group uh, for these rooms. So uh, 
give you this story. We would never do this in one of our small groups now. Um, I was preaching on faith one night to my guys, right? And, uh, and I decided a way to illustrate faith would be to do a trust fall. How many have done a trust fall before? Anyone know what this is? All right, so a trust fall um, is basically where you turn around and you fall back and some people catch you, right? And so, so um, somebody who's done a trust fall before, how, how high up do you normally do a trust fall from? Like standing, right? Maybe if you're venturous, like a stair, right? Maybe if you're crazy, like the stage, like two, three feet in the air, right? So I'm, I'm 19 in this story. Uh, I did a trust fall with a group of about 15 guys, 10, something like that. And I said, hey guys, we're going to tr- do a trust fall, but we're not pansies. So we're not doing this from like a stair or a little ledge or something. Let's go out in the woods, right? So we go out in the woods, uh, out, this is in Texas. And there is a, uh, a sand pit of sorts, a pit, right? It's a pit. And, uh, and it's got a big cliff edge on it. And it's about 10 to 15 feet in the air, right? So higher than a basketball hoop for sure. Um, it would have taken two or three guys stacked on top of each other to get to the top of this cliff. I said, that's our trust fall, right? I'm not kidding. This is not an exaggeration. Um, and so, uh, so like if we're on the ground higher than these lights probably or about where those lights are. Um, and so I say, we're going to do this trust fall guys. And this is, this is in part, like, I'm proud of this story because I feel like, man, my guys really trust me because they're all like, all right, yeah, this is a good idea. Um, again, this is the stupidity of young men, right? When they're giving each other advice, they back each other's ideas up. And so our first guy goes up. He's a small fry. He just gets up there. He's like 80 pounds. We catch him, set him down. The next guy goes up. He's not a, he's a big fry, right? Like he's, he goes up and, and he was gung ho. I'm going to, I'm going to fall. And, and, and so we're like, yeah, go ahead. You go ahead. And he falls. Uh, and we sort of slowed him down on the way to the ground. And, uh, and he hits the ground, you know, and all the, all the wind goes out of his lungs. And, and I don't know if you guys remember that feeling when you fell from the monkey bars kind of deal. And, and he's just laying there. And I'm like, oh, God, we killed him. Uh, we broke his spine. Something's wrong. Eventually, he wheezes, and he gets up, and he's like, that was awesome. And, uh, and so, uh, uh, you know, and that's not the, the worst part of that story is that I didn't stop. I was like, good, he's okay. Let's keep going, right? And, uh, and so we, we did another two or three guys, and then somebody else fell. And, and at that point, there was some mutiny going on. And, and some of the more sinful guys were like, I think this is a bad idea. And, um, you know, but that, that was me as a young man surrounding myself with young men that were supporting my stupid decision to do a stupid thing. Thankfully, God protected me. Um, another, another thing, I remember being, being young, and, uh, you know, I met Janelle, and I, I fell in love with Janelle, and I, I wanted to... Wanted to date or marry Janelle, uh, whichever I could do first. And, uh, and so I went to actually someone uh, that had the role advisor. And he was like a year older than me. That's not older. Uh, that is not wiser. And so I said, what should I do? And he said, I got an idea. Well, you know, we're, you're both about to graduate. And she's moving back to California. You're staying here in Texas. You should probably just not talk to her for like three months. And I was like, well, why would I do that? And he was like, you know, just really give us some time to see if, your feelings are true and da da da. And you know, after three months, if you still like her, like you'll know something's there. I'm like, what? That seems like a bad idea. Like, you know, I remember thinking like, if I wanted to get good at something, I wouldn't avoid it for three months. That's just, you know, I don't know. So I went to this guy's girlfriend and I was like, here's what your boyfriend told me was good advice. And she's like, that's terrible advice. Um, cause young women just mature quicker than us. Right. So there she's like, that's a terrible idea. I don't know why he would tell you that, you know, talk to her like as soon as you can. And I'm like, okay, all right, good. So 
King Xerxes, unfortunately, surrounds himself with young men who support his stupid decisions. And so what they do is they set up basically what we would now call the reality show, The Bachelor. uh, And and they have a bunch of women come in and try to impress him and sleep with him and and win uh, his favor. So that's that's our next character. Next up, we have Esther and Mordecai. Um, Mordecai is Esther's cousin. Um, And it says this in chapter 2, verse 5. It says, Now there was a Jew in Susa in the citadel whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, son of Shema, Son of Kish, uh, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away when Jehoniah, king of Judah, uh, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther. She had two names, Hadassah, her Hebrew name, Esther, her Persian name. Esther means hidden, uh, just a a side note, which kind of comes into play in a little bit. The daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman was beautiful in figure and was lovely to look at, which I think is such an odd line to throw in scripture, but okay. Uh, And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. And so when the king's order and his etiquette were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food. And the seven young women whom the king's palace are from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. So I want to talk about Mordecai first. I think he's kind of a mixed bag uh, when it comes to characters. Here's some good and bad things about him. He adopted Esther. That's a good thing. Like, that's a really good thing. Uh, He let his young cousin be taken away to a perverted king's sex beauty pageant. That's a bad thing. We don't have any record of Mordecai standing up for her and saying, no, 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 I don't want her to be in this. And he's her guardian. He he could have done that. Uh, Later, he helped save the king's life. That's a good thing. Uh, He also commands Esther to hide who she was. Don't reveal that you're a Jew. Don't reveal that you're a child of God. Keep that to yourself. That's a bad thing. Uh, And so maybe some of you guys can relate to Mordecai because you don't always get it right. Sometimes you stand for what you believe and other times you seem to shrink away. Maybe depending on what crowd you're in or what people you're around or whatever. You find yourself being really bold for Jesus one day and then you find yourself kind of hiding it the next day. You find yourself standing up for your convictions one day and then a few days later repenting for breaking those convictions and falling into sin. That's Mordecai. He's not a solid character that can just be set up on a pedestal. Like he has issues he does some things right and something's wrong the next in there was esther she'll become heroic later but up front not really uh she goes into this hiding that she's a child of god completely hiding it trying to make sure no one knows that she participates in an awful pageant we already went over what that pageant was it was sleep with the king and and whoever's the best will be the queen she wins that contest okay I'm just saying she won that contest. That's not a contest that we would then say, yes, so she's a woman of God. Be like her. She won the sex competition. Like, like we, she's not heroic at this point in the story. Um, and what we would see later is when Mordecai tells her of his plan that, that the Jews are going to be killed. Initially, she says, what, what should I do about that? I, I don't want to get killed myself. I'm kind of in the palace and. And I'm set, so can you just deal with this on your own? So she has some issues, too. She's scared. She's passive. She avoids, you know, the, the responsibility. She avoids her identity in God. 
And why am I telling you this? Why do I think it's so important that we go over this? Because here's why. As we get into the rest of the story, I think it's hugely important to understand this, that God does some of his mightiest works through some of his messiest people. Uh, That no matter where your story starts, no matter where you are right now, God has a plan for you. And so I'm setting all this up. I'm introducing us to these characters that honestly, the first several chapters of Esther, you go, man, this is a messed up story. Like, I don't remember this from Sunday school, right? Like, I remember Esther just being this woman of God, and and she was pure, and she, no, but she wasn't. And Mordecai wasn't a great guy either. And Haman and King, and they're, they're all pretty bad at this point. So wherever you're from, whatever mistakes you've made, whatever past you've had, God has a purpose for you. And we're going to see that as we, as we move on. There is one more character I have to mention. I, I've said his name a few times. It's Haman. Um, I remember in Sunday school, it would be hateful Haman, right? Um, Esther chapter 3, it says this. After the, these things, King Xerxes promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, uh, the Agite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. And all the king's servants who were with the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman. For so the king had commanded concerning him, but Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. Now I want to pause here. Haman is the second in command in the land. And culturally, it was very normal to bow to people. Some people get caught up and they think, oh yeah, Mordecai, he was like, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. No. No, there's no golden idol. This isn't worship. This was cultural. The king, the second in command, these high rulers, people bowed. There's still cultures that do this. As far as we know, there's nothing in scripture that would say that the reason Mordecai is doing this is for a religious conviction. He mentions he's Jewish uh, on why he wouldn't bow. And why that's important is because basically Haman's family, his ancestors, the Amalekites, were at constant war with Jews. They hated each other. For hundreds and hundreds of years, they hated each other. So the most likely reason Mordecai didn't bow to, uh, yeah, to Haman was because of their family history. It was a personal deal. This isn't a religious deal. This is a personal thing where he's just, I don't like that guy. I don't like his family, so I'm not going to bow to him. And he didn't just do this once. He just didn't do this a couple times. It, w- it says that daily, every time that Haman came out, Mordecai made sure not to bow and made it very obvious because everyone else is bowing. So much so that Haman notices it. Like, that guy never bows. He really just doesn't like me. He really wants to make me angry. Um, now, Haman has the option to be level-headed and go, you know what? It's one guy. There's a whole kingdom. Whatever. You know, he's got a grudge. I'm just going to leave him alone. But let's see what Haman does. Esther chapter 3. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay homage, Haman was filled with, his, with wrath. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. That wasn't enough. Uh, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. So he goes, oh, it's that whole family that we've been fighting with for hundreds of years. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of, of Xerxes, the people of Mordecai. If I could put like a, a, a meme on this, this is Will Ferrell sitting at the desk. Boy, that escalated quickly, right? Like this went from Haman not bowing to like, or Mordecai not bowing to Haman, to Haman going, you know what? I should kill, no, I should kill everyone that's related to his whole race, right? Because one guy won't bow, I should kill his whole race, all of them. I mean, this is insane. And if we could read the whole story, he actually goes to the king and he says, 
king, here's what we should do. It's a bad year for taxes, right? We don't have a lot of money in the treasury. I've got this idea. You know, the Persian Empire, we've taken over all these other kingdoms. We have all these different races mixed into our culture. The Jews actually are kind of growing a lot. They have a lot of money, a lot of land, a lot of stuff. What if I killed all of them and then we took all their stuff and then we made it look like we actually had a really successful year? Right? Like it's a basically a terrible business idea, but an idea nonetheless that's going to make the king look good and his kingdom look good. And, and so the king says, sure, yeah, yeah, let's do that. Um, and, and so he gets him to sign off on it, and he gives him a day that he can kill all the Jews. And then they post this around town. All the Jews are going to be killed on this day, right? And, and as I was reading this, I think my initial thought is like, well, why didn't all the Jews just leave then, right? But then I thought, you know what, if, if that happened in, in our country, how, how easy would that be? Like if they said we're going to kill all of this race next Monday, how hard would it be for all of that race to get out of our country? It, it would be fairly hard if the government was the one issuing it and they control all of the travel arrangements and who goes in and out of the cities. It's not as easy as we'd like to think that they could have just left. And so now the Jews are in a panic because they know like... We're all going to get killed next week. There's posters around town. It's on all the blogs. It's on Facebook. There's a, I got invited to it, you know, like I got invited to get killed. Uh, and so that's what's happening right now because Mordecai wouldn't bow to Haman. Now all of his people are going to get killed. And so we can see really from Haman that hate, hatred will eat you up and it'll destroy you. Because what will happen in this story is Haman keeps getting promoted and keeps getting noticed and keeps getting honored. And there's a story in, in chapter 5 where he brings his wife and his relatives and his friends together and he brags about all this. Like, I'm going to these dinners and I'm getting recognized by the king and I'm awesome. And it's like several verses of him saying this stuff. And then he ends up by saying, but all of it's worthless because Mordecai's still alive. And, and I just see Haman as this guy who, man, like any of us could get that way. Some of you guys have bitterness in your heart. It will destroy you. And what we'll see in Haman's character is that it actually will bring his life to an end because of his hatred, because of his bitterness. And so all in all, this is a messed up story with a lot of pieces that aren't good. So just to review, the people of God, they've been exiled from their homeland. That's why they're in this nation to begin with. Their whole nation got taken over and they're in a foreign land. Esther is now married to a pagan, into a pagan family, to a perverted king. Mordecai has just signed a death wish for all of his people, and it seems as God is not to be found. When you read the story of Esther, God's name is not explicitly mentioned anywhere in the book. It's the only book in the Bible that doesn't mention God. And so at this point in the story, I mean, it's, it's not looking good. And part of that is these people have been away from their homeland, away from the area that they could worship for a very long time. And, and they're starting to drift away from God. But if, that, if you've been there, if you've been in that situation where you don't feel close to God and there's a lot of messy pieces to your story, I just want to show you that that's where Esther was. And, and she would encourage you. God's purposes are bigger than you. They're bigger than this situation. They're bigger than the things you're going through. And so what I want to look at as we, as we get kind of near the end of this message, for the next few minutes, I want to look at three things, three truths in the book of Esther that I think we have to embrace if we want to walk in the purpose and the calling God has on our life. There's three things that really jumped out at me that Esther eventually had to do if she wanted to fulfill those plans, those purposes that God had placed on her. So the first one, the first one that we have to do if we want to walk in God's calling is that we must face our fears and be willing to risk it all. So I want to set this up. I told you guys that Mordecai now knows all of his people are going to die. Esther kind of doesn't know this. She's in the palace. She's kind of in a bubble. She doesn't know what's going on. 
Uh, it's like being homeschooled or something, right? Like, so she's in this bubble. She doesn't know what's going on in the outside world. Uh, she doesn't know all of her people are going to get killed. So Mordecai sends word to her and says, Esther, um, the king signed this thing. Haman hates us. You know that. Uh, we're all going to get killed. Esther's response literally initially is, what's that to me? You know, like if I go to the king, he could kill me anyway. Because in that day and age, you weren't allowed to just walk into the king's room and talk to him, even if you were his wife, right? He had this this crazy rule set up that if he's on the throne and he's sitting there and you walk in and you weren't invited, he could just give the signal and they'd chop your head off right there. It's done. done. Literally, there's like pictures of this time period where it was a picture of the throne and somebody standing behind the throne with a giant axe. That's most likely what it was like. And so she says, I'm, I'm not going to risk that. I'm not going to go. And then, and then Mordecai reminds her, he says, well, why do you think your life would be spared? You're a Jew. And some have read into that and like, who, who's the only person that knew she was a Jew? Mordecai, as far as we know. So was he threatening her? Was he like, hey, uh, I'll let him know. You know but whatever it was, it, 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 it sparked something in Esther. It woke her up. It, it alerted her. You know what? I've got to face my fears. I can't just sit here and be afraid and, and, and not be willing to risk anything. And so... We can see this in, in Esther chapter 4, verse 16. It says, she's saying this back to Mordecai. Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I, go to the ki- then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So she goes from being scared and passive to being bold and being willing to risk her life for her people, willing to risk her life to accomplish the plan that God had for her. And she's even starting to introduce probably the most spiritual element of the story, fasting, that, that she wants her people to fast. Now, it doesn't go as far as to say fast and prayer, which is pretty the, the normal term you would see in the Bible, but she's getting back on track. She's coming back to her roots. She's coming back to her identity as a child of God. Uh, and so she says that we're going to fast. She becomes bold. She commands her people to fast. She states that even if she loses her life, she's going to do this because it's the right thing. And so that in our lives, as we want to accomplish the purpose and the plan that God has for us, there's going to be a point where you have to do that. Maybe multiple points where you have to face fears and you have to be willing to risk it. That might be risking your finances. That might be risking that job. That might be risking, you know, that, that dream that's not from God might be risking that boyfriend or girlfriend. It, 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 it might be that thing that, that you are so afraid of losing. Well, Esther was afraid of losing her life, but she came to a point where she said, you know what? I, I've got to do this. I, I have to. I have to face my fears. Um, to tell you guys a goofy story, right? Uh, just because I, I, I don't have a lot of time to put this story in my messages, but I thought this one will fit, right? So you guys know my wife, right? Uh, Janelle, she's sitting over here. Um, don't ever call my wife small. Uh, so when my wife was in high school, um, she was same size she is now pretty much, you know, she was small and she had this teacher, uh, that, or volleyball coach, right. Uh, that used to pick on her basically. And, you know, you can't do that cause you're too small. You can't do that cause you're too small, you know, and it got to Janelle and Janelle finally faced her fears. She faced this teacher who was a bully and, and she stood up on her desk or her chair. And she said, what was her name? Mrs. What? She's like, Mrs. Shunt. I'm an ox. I'm not small. I'm an ox. Don't ever call me small again. And she stood up in front of her whole class, in front of her teacher, and, and she told her to stop bullying her and that she was an ox. And so for the rest of high school, people called her Janelle the Ox. And uh, so you guys can bring that nickname back uh, if you want to. 
just don't don't mix ox and cow up. That's a bad idea. You ever, you know, you ever do that, your head might roll. Um, so Esther had to stand up like that. Esther had to face her fear. She had to go and do something that was going to be terrifying, that was going to be scary, and she did it. The second thing that Esther had to do, that we have to do, if we want to walk in the purposes of God, is we have to stop hiding our true identity. And I want to be, I want to kind of put a, uh, an asterisk on this because here, here's what I think some people hear when I say that. Um, you'll hear that if you struggle with sin of some kind, that you should be okay with that. And that's not what I'm saying. And here's why I say that because every day, every day, this isn't an exaggeration. Every day that I read the news, there is some kind of cover story about someone in a lifestyle, normally, normally homosexuality, sometimes other things that have now come out and told everyone. And everyone says they're heroic. They're bold. They're brave. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not bold, brave, or heroic. Admitting that you have sin in your life is brave. Being willing to work on it and change is brave. Just being okay with your sin, not brave. Great, you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. Cool. I don't get, my, I don't get on the front page of CNN. Hey, Joel admits that, you know, he's a sinner. No, I'm not going to be on the front page of CNN for being heroic. Esther had to be heroic because... She had to come out and admit that she was a child of God, that she was a Jew. Doing that would risk her life. Doing that would put her in harm's way, possibly. But she had to stop hiding if she wanted to walk in God's purposes. I want to look at this. Uh, Esther chapter 7, starting in verse 2, it says, And on the second day, as they were drinking wine. Actually, let me back up one second. So what Esther did is she did go to the king. She said, And the king granted her life. said, what would you like? And she said, I'd like to have dinner with you and Haman. Because Esther, even though she knew what she wanted to do, she didn't rush it. She had some wisdom there. And so she, she hasn't seen the king in a month at this point. She said, I, I just would like to have dinner with you and Haman. He says, great. So they have dinner. And during dinner, he says, what would you like, Esther? I'll give you anything. And she says, I'd like to have dinner tomorrow. She's kind of, she's easing back into the king's life. She's not running in and demanding something. She, she's setting this up. She's using wisdom. Because that's what we have to do when we want to walk in the purposes of God. We do sometimes have to take our time. It doesn't mean you run out tomorrow and quit your job and move somewhere and foreclose on your house. Um, Sometimes it takes time. Sometimes you have to kind of work to get there. Esther's working her way up to get to do the thing that God's called her to do. So it says this, on the second day as they were drinking wine, so they're at that second dinner now, her and Haman and the king. After the feast, the king said to Esther again, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and it, um, sorry, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed and to be killed and to be annihilated. If we were sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent for the affliction is not to be compared with the loss of the king. Just a side note. She's saying that because the king had just lost an important war. It just lost an important battle. And so she's kind of, she's complimenting him. She's encouraging him. She's saying, Hey, look, I know you just had this big thing. And if it was just this, I wouldn't bother you, but it's not that we're all going to get killed. And then the king said to the queen, Esther, who is he? And where is he who has dared to do this? This is the king again, drunk about to make an important decision. Okay? But Queen Esther knows he does that. She knew that. Like, she's not foolish. She knows that he's going to make decisions when he's drunk. And Esther said, a foe, an enemy, the wicked Haman. And she's, 
I can just see her pointing across the table. Haman thinks he's doing well up to this point. Not now. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. What I find interesting about this story is that there's really two people hiding in, in this story. Esther is hiding her origins, her religion, her people, who she is. Haman was hiding his motives. Uh, when he told the king he wanted to kill the Jews for the money and all that, that wasn't really the reason, right? Like he could have killed anyone for that. He could have just taken their stuff. Uh, he, he was bitter and angry and hateful towards Mordecai and his family. And so he lied to the king and he, and he had false motives. And here, here's, here's what I want you to know that when you hide who you are, when you try to hide a part of your life, one of two things really happen. Either you come to terms with it and expose yourself and let, let, let people know who you really are, or someone else will eventually expose you. That, that's, I mean, we see this every day in the news, don't we? That some leader, some person had this secret life, this secret identity, and eventually someone told everyone about it, right? And, and trust me when I say, if there's something hidden in your life, it's much better for you to be the one to come clean about it than someone else to expose it for you. So Haman uh, is exposed, and what happens eventually is that the king goes out of the room. He then throws himself at the feet of Esther and tries to beg for his life. The king comes back in and sees that and thinks Haman's trying to hit on his wife. And then that's when it's over. He's like, that's done. Haman's killed like that night. Um, and, and Haman's hatred, Haman's deception leads to his death. And so the second thing there, like I said, we, we have to stop hiding our true identity. The longer we hide it, the, 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 the more we're putting ourselves at risk of losing our life over that hidden thing, over that thing that we want to try to keep secret. And so if you're hiding that, if you, if you have something you're hiding in your identity, maybe it's that you are a Christian and when you get around other Christians, you just hide it. You just kind of suppress that, keep it down. You need to stop hiding that. Maybe it's a sin in your life. Maybe there's something there that you haven't dealt with. You need to stop hiding that. You're never going to be able to walk in the purposes and plans God has for your life with hidden sin. It's, it's not going to happen. You're never going to be able to walk in those purposes with a hidden Christianity. We, we say so often that, that we, our faith is personal. It is, but it's not private. It's, it's never meant to be hidden in the closet and not talked about. It's, it's public. It affects everything we do. It affects the way we talk, the way we work, the friends we have, the relationships we build, the way we live in our communities. All of it affects everything. It's never meant to be private though it's personal. There's one more thing, one more truth that, that I believe Esther embraced and that, that we have to embrace if we want to walk in the purposes of God. And this one I think is just encouraging for us to hear. It says that, uh, I wrote this, we, we must trust that God is always working, though sometimes quietly. God is never mentioned in the book of Esther. There are, uh, there are no one prays, no one worships, no one preaches. There are no miracles, there are no plagues, there are no prophecies. And yet throughout the whole book, God is still at work. God is still walking with us, even at moments when we may not be walking with him. God's people in this story are far from him and have been far from him for a long time. But God is not far from his people in this story. He's right there in the midst of all of this. He's, he's weaved throughout this whole story. God is present. God knew all these mistakes that people were making and, he, and, he, and in his wisdom and in his sovereignty, he knew I'll use that. I'll use that. Oh, Queen Esther's going to, or Esther's going to hide who she is. Oh, she's going to participate in this awful patch. I'll use that. I'll use it. Mordecai's going to be wishy-washy. He's going to command her to stop uh, to, or to hide her identity. I'll use it. 
Haman's going to be hateful. He's going to be bitter. He's going to try to kill my people. I'll use it. The king's an idiot and gets drunk and makes rash decisions. I'll use that. God, God, he literally, I love reading these stories because God can use anything to accomplish his will. He can use a perverted drunk king and a woman who's willing to participate in that kind of pageant and an uncle or cousin who, who kind of is wishy-washy and this hateful guy to accomplish a story that we're reading and stand back and go, wow, that's amazing. It's incredible. And these aren't fantastic people, but it's a fantastic God that, that, that is in the situation with them. And so as we've been going through this series, I know sometimes you can look at it and go, man, I'm not a giant. I'm not Abraham. I'm not David. I, 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 I'm not Rebecca. Like, I don't feel like these people. So maybe Esther is the giant you should be looking at because she didn't get it right a lot. And God used her to save a nation. I mean, think about that. He used her to save a nation. What has he got in store for you? What, what plan, what purpose does he have for your life that you think, man, I could never accomplish that because of who I am, because of what I've done? Esther would say God's purposes are bigger than you. They're bigger than what you've done. They're bigger than that, that identity that you think you are right now. I love this passage right here, uh, 2 Timothy 2.13. It, it, it kind of sums it up so nicely. It says, if we are faithless, he remains faithless faithful. It doesn't matter if you're having a mountaintop experience and you feel close to God, or if you feel like God is nowhere nearby, he is faithful to you. He's faithful. If like Xerxes, you've participated in drunken parties and slept around and been just a total pagan, God is faithful. And if you've been hateful like Haman and held on to bitterness and hated someone, God's faithful. If you've been wishy-washy like Mordecai, he's faithful and if you've been scared and passive and hiding uh, and promiscuous and, and things like that, like Esther, God's faithful. He's faithful. He doesn't give up on us. He doesn't walk out on us. He doesn't ignore us. He doesn't leave us alone. He's faithful always, even when we're faithless. So I want to I want to wrap up here. I want to pray for you guys. And, and we do this every week. Some of you here today probably aren't walking with Jesus, probably don't know Jesus. You haven't had that moment. Like Esther, where you said, you know what, I'm going to just, I'm going to follow God. I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to walk with him. I'm going to be bold. I'm going to stop hiding. You haven't had that moment yet. So we want to give you a chance to have that moment. So if you guys could just close your eyes for, for a moment here. If that's you, man, if, if you're like, you know what, I need to start a relationship with God today. I need to start walking in that plan for my life today, that purpose that he's called me to today. If that's you, on the count of three, I just want you to put your hand up and we're going to pray together. One, two, three. All right. Now, I, we say this sometimes when, when no one raises their hands that, that, that we're all family. So that's what I trust. If you're here and, and you're not family yet and you're still checking this out, we're praying for you. And I want you to be encouraged that God has a purpose for you. But I do want to ask this of everyone else. If you're here today and you know that there's purposes, there's plans for your life that God's called you to, that you've been avoiding, things that you've not been walking in, whether it's because you're scared or because you're hiding or, or some other reason, um, if there's something in your life that you know God's called you to accomplish and you've been avoiding it, can you put your hand up? I just want to pray for you. All right, and there's a lot of people like that. So we're going to wrap up here. I'm going to pray for you. Then we're going to wrap the service up, but let's just pray. Lord, God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for characters in the Bible like Queen Esther. 
someone who starts with an imperfect past, someone who starts with a messy past, Lord, and you use her in the midst of that. You don't wait till she's cleaned up. You don't wait until she's gotten a bunch of things right, Lord, but, but you call her out in the midst of her messiness, in the midst of her mistakes, in the midst of her pagan life to start doing your will, to start accomplishing your purposes. So God, I pray for the people here in our church, Lord, who you, you have called to do amazing things in our community and around the world. God, I pray that they would stop hiding from those things. I pray that they would be bold, that they'd be willing to risk it all to see those things come to life. God, that you'd fill them with boldness. You'd fill, Lord, them with your spirit and you'd get rid of that spirit of fear, Lord. God, we thank you, God. We thank you that you use messy people to do mighty works, Lord. God, we love you. We praise your name, God. You are awesome. In Jesus' name, amen.